Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast for today. My guest is Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Did I get that right? You did. You did. <laughs> Please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Oh, um, oh stop. So hold up. Sorry. I am trying to get in the habit. Her pronoun, the, their pronouns are she, her. I mean, yes. Yes. I'm trying yeah. to make sure we get into the habit of asking, not assuming people's pronouns. And so as we move forward, I will be adding those to the podcast. So, Yasmin, could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you. And thank you also um, for asking for my pronouns. It's definitely something that I too am trying to do a bit more of. And also, I think even as people who have sort of been in, the inclusion and sort of like challenging structures space for a long time. It's important for like for us, I think, to also um, introduce new habits into our lives. So thank you for that. Thank you for modeling that. Um, my name is um, Yasmin. And what I also wanted to add actually was that for a long time, I used to introduce myself as Yasmin. So most people will um, have heard my name as Yasmin. Um, but that's an anglicized version or a, of my name, yes. which, you know, I grew up with my parents calling me Yasmin. And so I've been slowly trying to sort of decolonize my own name. And even though it's not that big of a difference, right, oh. it actually... But, it's, but, but it's it is a big, a big difference. difference. It's like it's not but a it big is, difference, yeah, but it's exactly. a big difference. And it's, yes, it's so yes. interesting because I have to do this work like internally. Whenever somebody says, how do I pronounce your name? I'm like, oh, which version of my name am I going to give? I've been giving a different version for years. And so it's been a really interesting, it's, yeah. <laughs> it is so funny that you say that because I want to get into this, but I want to bring this up since you're bringing it up right now. I tell my audience all the time because my audience is mainly mm. white folks um, all over the world. And I have to tell them that I am an yep. educator. Um, but I have to remind myself that I am educating the oppressor while I'm also processing my own oppression. A hundred percent. We grew up, we've grown up in the same environment. And so right? um, we'll talk about that, but go ahead with your introduction. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So um, I'm Yasmin Majid, and I, my pronouns are she, her. And I guess people often ask me what I do and I don't have an answer to that in the same way that maybe I did a few years ago. But um, what I say to people is I do a lot of things, but really the thing that connects it all is the why. Um, I do work that is about trying to build a, fa a fairer and safer world for, for everyone. Um, I try to do work that's about transformative justice. And that turns up in all sorts of different ways. Um, I was trained as a mechanical engineer. So I did mechanical engineering at university, loved it, really wanted to be in motorsports. And that was kind of like my professional passion was race cars and race cars and, and like driving them and designing them and being around them and everything. So that's kind of, that's how I started out in the world professionally. Um, and I got into a master's in motorsports program, but I needed to save up money for that. It was quite expensive. And so I got a job on an oil and gas rig. And so I worked as a driller on oil and gas rigs for about four years. Um, and then my life shifted. Uh, but 
before I get into that, the other thing I will say is at the same time, so simultaneously while I was doing my sort of engineering work, um, when I was young, when I was 16, I started um, an organization called Youth Without Borders. And that was all about getting young people to work together to positively change their communities. And so I was sort of doing organizing work from a very young age. And it wasn't until my mid-20s that these sort of paths came, uh, came together. But for context, uh, I was born in Sudan. I was born in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. And my family moved to Australia when I was about a year and a half, almost two. And we moved to Brisbane, Australia. And Brisbane at the time, you know, we were like the second Sudanese family to move to Brisbane. And the next family didn't come until 10 years later. So I grew up in a, in a society that didn't have any understanding of difference um, and also being Muslim that, you know, that was an additional sort of like difference. Um, but I also was sort of like first generation migrant. And I did have the privilege of having parents who were very highly educated. Um, and so they, they did a number of things that I think gave me the foundation to kind of do the work that I do today. And that I feel very fortunate. For. Because yes, on one hand, I grew up in a, in a society where my difference was my biggest marker. But on the other hand, my parents always gave me a sense of belonging in our home. And that is very important, I think, for like a sense of security in terms of who you are and the value that you have in the world. Um, so should I, should, I, should I continue and kind of give you a little bit? Well, let's of, stop there. Yeah, let's yeah, stop yeah. there because I want you to ask, answer the two questions that we always start with. Yes. And it's how, why is it important to cause a scene and then specifically how you're causing a scene? So this is part mm. two of what you were just saying. So first, how, why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? I think if you care about the world changing, um, that answers the question for why it's important to cause a scene because change has never happened without some sort of a scene. You know, a scene ultimately is about change happening. And I think we are all, so many of us, if you're listening to this podcast, are quite aware of the fact that there, you know, yes, there's been a lot of good work that has happened, but there's also a still, there is still quite a lot of work that needs to happen. Um, and every time there has been a shift, it has come with a scene, you know, whatever revolution it is, whatever protest, whatever transition, it always comes with, because ultimately changing the status quo um, is about saying, you know, we need to make some sort of a difference and people are generally, you know, societies and structures are, are resistant to change. And so I think it, whether it's sort of, at the higher macro level or whether it's just causing a scene at your dinner table because somebody has said something or somebody's perspective perhaps requires a little bit of adjustment to be more inclusive or whatever, in whatever way we are causing the scene, I think that disruption ultimately is where there is growth. And so now let's part two. Your second exactly. question. <laughs> okay, before you answer that, um, I want to, I have a fascination with race cars. Mm. So we're really going to get into this. That is, that is one of my bucket list things. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. To, oh great. yeah. I love, I love. Oh, amazing. I love Aston Martin. It's oh, so good, good, right? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I've loved oh, them for babe. years. Good yes. And that yes, is like, yes. uh, that is like my bucket oh, list. Get amazing. on an open highway. There is and nothing just, like it. Um, 
Oh man, I did. My uh, my uncle had a Corvette, and my family's from the yes, he's from the country, and so I got on the main road and I just opened that bitch up and just went. <laughs> oh my god, that is the best. It's so it exhilarating, is, it, but it it's is, so right? scary. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling my uh, my partner the other day about how, um, funnily enough, also in a Corvette. I like I hit some 200 miles an hour somewhere where I'm not going to say because I don't want to get into trouble. And I was like, it just like time slows down, but speeds up, you know, it's, it's, it's just the wildest, most amazing feeling. I um, uh, bought uh, a Groupon to do a, um, (laughs) to do a race car thing with, um, I can't think of that. I can't think of the exact, it's the Audi, the eight something series, the sports uh-huh, car. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, yes. So get back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get back to your, anyway, yeah, yeah, get yeah. back to your um, story. But yes, we are kinder spirits on that. We are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think more people need to get involved in it. You know, like it's just that it is a pretty unique feeling. But anyway, coming back to that. But I mean, like to your point, though, um, people don't expect to see black Muslim women on a race course. You know, like, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, no, it's just when they think of like race car driver, Yasmin Abdel Majid does not, you know, pop to mind. And so I think, like, from, from my very early sort of like days of um, wanting to be in different spaces, I was causing a scene. And so the way I think the, some of the ways that I have caused scenes in the past have been unintentional, right? Simply because I wanted to be my whole self and do what I wanted to do. So I would turn up in spaces where people didn't expect me to be, but I thought, well, why shouldn't I be here? Whether it was on an oil rig or whether it was on a racetrack or, you know, whether it was leading um, an organization, you know, when I was 16 and I started Youth Without Borders, people said to me quite explicitly, do you know what you're doing? Do you know how hard this is? And I was like, no, but that's not going to stop me. Right. So from the get go, um, and I'll tell you a quick anecdote before I, I sort of move on. When I was 13, um, I got involved in like Fair Go for Palestine and lots of pro-Palestinian kind of um, advocacy stuff. And it was, you know, I'm 13, so I don't really necessarily understand geopolitics, you know, in detail. But I'm also a young Muslim woman or young Muslim girl growing up in a post 9-11 environment. And so I am politicized wearing a headscarf. So I am politicized from a very, very early age. So I start going out to protests. Um, and my, uh, I ended up on like on the evening news one afternoon and cause I was at the front of the protests and, and so on. Um, and my principal, so I, I had gotten a scholarship to like a fancy private school and my principal approached me a couple of days later and he was like, look, some of the parents of, you know, these are all, like, it's mostly white kids. I was the first girl to wear a headscarf at this school, two and a half thousand students. Um, it was like some of the parents have seen you on the news. And, um, and he said to me, look, I've gotten a call from someone who said that if there are students like you at this school, that they don't want their kids attending. So they're essentially saying it's like, it's either these Muslim kids or my kids. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like I said, I immediately, my, you know, my stomach dropped out and I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to, you know, like, what do you want me to do? And he looked at me and he was like, no, I said to them that if they had a problem with having students like you at the school, that they could find somewhere else for their kids to go. And I remember that. And I always tell that story because I think I did not expect for my expression, my freedom of expression to be supported. Um, And I was very like ready to sort of, you know, as a scared 13 year old with my headmaster to be like, oh my God, I'm, you know, let me do the right thing here. And the right thing is to silence myself. But the support 
because because we're taught that right we're taught that the the way to like move through the world right you immediately change because we've been, because we're taught and, that and how early did i learn that lesson mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know yes and so my question what you just said was my question was how do you um how do you move in the world when your various existence is political yeah yeah and i think that that's the bit that like and i know you're you know, listeners are probably curious as to like what I'm doing right now, which I'll get to. But I think this is a really important point to emphasize, right? And it also was something that I took time to be able to to unpick and understand for myself that I wished that I could go into a room and just be an engineer, right? I wished yes. that I could go into a space and just be the thing that I wanted to present as. It's so funny because Black women are saying, hey, we just want to be the mediocre white dude. Right. We, we could right. just be, we could just, just be just the be mediocre that. white, yeah. yes. <laughs> you know? um, and then I wrote um, a note, freedom of expression, because for you, for you said you unpacked your freedom of but is it really that just hit me in in, mm. in a visceral way because it's our existence, and so we keep having to bounce between what people consider freedom of expression. They can white folks can decide, mm. mm-hmm. make a decision, and that's their privilege mm-hmm. whether they will engage in freedom right. of expression. Yeah, for us to open our mouths, right. To say I want, or or even worse, to say no mm-hmm. as a complete statement is a freedom of expression that is challenged so freaking often. Yeah. And so, and that I think leads us to where I am today. So I was working away as a as an engineer doing sort of my my drilling work, and I was really good at what I did right? Yes, I was doing all of this stuff on the side, but I was, I was like the top ranked gr- drilling graduate in my entire region. I'd done like an accreditation that usually takes five years. I did it in 18 months. I was like, I was really good at what I was you doing. You was kicking butt. <laughs> right. Um, but at the same time, I was writing my memoir, right? Because I'd been approached by Penguin, Random House, at the time, the biggest publisher in the world. And they had said, hey, you know, you've got a really interesting story. Um, would you like to write a book? And at the time I was like, you know, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone want to listen to my story? And my mom sat me down and was like, write the damn book, right? <laughs> so so <laughs> she was like, do you realize how rare this is? Take the opportunity. I'm like, okay, mom. So <laughs> I write the book in my time off. The book is about to be published and I say to my, and I'd like organize everything. And when I'd gotten hired by this company, I'd let them know, like, I was the first female, when I got hired for my first job, I was the first female they'd hired in my department in Australia. They didn't have any other female field engineers. And then I moved to another company, got a a sort of um, higher ranking job. And at that company, I'd said to them, look, I'm publishing a book and it doesn't mention the company, but it's fine. The book, just before it's published, um, the company gets wind of it. And they cannot handle the idea that I might have an outside life or I might, you know, say something that they're upset with, that they turn around and they say, publishing this book is, um, you're demonstrating a pattern of behavior of non-compliance. Um, they issued a disciplinary warning. I'd just been given a double promotion. They docked my promotion. They docked my pay. They docked my bonus. They docked my ranking. And they said, you're just going to have to sit in the office for the next year, essentially benched because you dared to 
to essentially voice your story that actually doesn't have any impact on the company. I had not even mentioned the city I was in or the name of the company. And yet I was being severely punished. And wasn't this book, wasn't this book being written, the agreement before you even got to the job? Yeah. You, and so this go, I'm going to, I think this conversation is going to be interesting because a lot of what you're talking about and we're going to, uh, it's going to be helpful for me to unpack is this freedom of expression and mm-hmm. who get, and who gets, who gets to, to say, get, who gets to pr- the privilege of the freedom of expression. So there's so many, there's so much, and this is, and, and so this conversation Oh, this is, oh, I love when I have these, mm, I learned so much because I just, it just, ah, if the hairs on the back of my neck are standing mm. because it talks up, speaks to why tech is fucking up right now. Mm-hmm. Because when you say that all speech is equal, mm-hmm. when you say that we need to have a conversation with the alt-right because everything is fair, when you say these things, but in reality, a person cannot even write a memoir of their lived experience without being punished for that. There is no such thing as freedom of expression for everyone. So there's no such thing as equality. Y'all need to cut that quality crap out. And Mm -hmm. we are going for equity because it's, ah, yes. The world is not equal. Yeah. And so, and it gets, it gets better Mm -hmm. slash worse, right? So I, (laughs) yeah, of course it does. Right, right, right. Like this is, this is how it goes. So I'm sort of like, at this point, I'm like 24, 25. I've just published my memoir and been like essentially squeezed out of my organization. I take a year leave without pay. And I'm like, let me just try to sort my life out. Right. In this year off, I get a job, like a casual job as a broadcaster hosting a television show um and i and i go with my book on tour okay, and I'm, stop right there yeah. <laughs> some tells me this company ain't gonna be happy that they gave you a year off to get your shit together yeah. and mm-hmm. you become a broadcaster yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. so i start i start broadcasting i start um touring the world really with my book just casually um and then and okay, yes, me. <laughs> nothing you're doing is casual. <laughs> you know, we out here. We out here. Yeah, we out here. <laughs> so, and then I start, what happens is I start forgetting my place in the world, right? I start forgetting that I'm not a mediocre white man who can say what they want to say, right? And I get a bit complacent. So, the first thing that happens is that, um, there's this writers' festival in my hometown, Brisbane, and this author, this international author, is giving the opening speech, right? And the the theme of the festival is like community and belonging or something. She gets up and she's like, "Cultural appropriation is a fad, a myth. I should be able to say whatever I want. Um, I should be able to wear a Mexican sombrero if I feel like it." She puts on a sombrero <laughs> from from, this from Brisbane, Australia. She puts on a sombrero. Yeah, no, she. <laughs> Yeah, so she's, I think she's English. But I'm saying she's in Brisbane. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's in Brisbane. And she's like, and I'm like sitting there in the front row with my mom, and I'm like, this woman is outrageous. Like, what is happening? And I'm also one of the few writers of color in the audience. And so I say to my mom, we have to leave because everybody's laughing at these jokes in the audience. I cannot co sign this. I cannot sit here and allow it to happen around me. And so I walk out. Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, 
Intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. So happened around me. And so I walk out. I walk out. And then the next day I come to the the rest the event and people are like, oh, I don't really understand why you walked out. It wasn't that bad a speech. And I was like, okay. Some educating needs to happen here. So I write a blog post about it. It gets picked up and reposted by The Guardian. And this is like 2016. And like on a Sunday, it gets something like 250 million views. Oh, sorry, 250,000 views in like the space of 12 hours or something. It goes viral. And then all of a sudden, there's this tiny 25-year-old who's attacking in in the eyes of the media uh, a famous author. Her name was Lionel Shriver, um, who'd like won awards and so on. I didn't know. I was like, she's just some random white lady. But like, (laughs) she's apparently famous. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Because we need to to tease that out because this is my thing with many of you. You are random white people to us. You know, I, I mean, just like yeah. you say, we all look alike. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, many of you look alike to us. <laughs> and I know there's a scientific reason for that because culturally, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But on we don't face. know who yeah. the hell you are. And so you come into our spaces and you expect some accolades. And we're like, and you are who? I get who this you? all yeah. the time, particularly when I see someone on Twitter or saying something just stupid in the tech space Mm. and I amplify the stupidity and then people are like well you're attacking well who the hell is this well if they're so famous they should understand their platform and take it seriously exactly and not propagate and promote bullshit so that I would because most of the time I'm not even (laughs) looking people sending it to me yeah yeah they're coming your way they're coming into your house people people are saying Kim did you see this hey Kim did you I mean I'm not even I'm not following these people (laughs) so I don't know who they are but somebody who's and I'm like, oh, okay, we need to cause a scene about this. So, Kim, did you right. see this this thing? And it is like, <laughs> it, it again, it goes back to, oh my, thank you. I just need people to understand. <laughs> just like you don't know me and don't care about me is the same way I feel about many of you. <laughs> the irony, right. And the irony was that she then wrote a piece in the New York Times attacking me, being like, People like Yasmin are the problem. Millennials like her are the problem. She is silencing me. She is refu- she's saying that I should have no voice. I'm like, woman, you keynoted uh, the Brisbane Writers Festival, my hometown's festival, and you're writing a piece attacking me in the New York Times. Like, if that is silencing, I want some of that. <laughs> exactly. Can I have that platform? Can I have I that mean, silence? Yes, yeah. Yes, yes, right. Because, yes. like, I really don't think it's how do you go from How do you go from there to, to, to be able to... You're attacked or you're silenced, but you have... You can you have contacts to do exactly. an editorial in the New York Times, yeah. And so, okay, this happens, and then it kind of it blows up, and I'm like, wow, okay, I didn't realize. And then two two other things happen that change my life, really. So I then I'm kind of approaching the end of my year off, and I'm like thinking about going back into engineering, right? And then I get into there's a, a television show on in Australia called Q&A, which is kind of like a a current affairs panel program, right? And there's a politician on this show that I'm I'm on with her. And she starts going on about how like we should ban the burqa and we should ban Muslims and anyone that follows Sharia law and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like- Wow, you're on the panel? Yeah, I'm on the panel. And I'm like, 
at this point, firstly, I had been, you know, and I say this kind of facetiously, but not, I'd been on my period for like two weeks at this point <laughs> and I was tired. I was tired of seeing and hearing this like, like bullshit essentially. And I'd been hearing it for years since I was 10 years old, you know? And so I'm sitting faced with this rhetoric and I'm like, stop. I was like, do you even know what you're talking about? I was like, you literally do not know what you're talking about. These are the rights that are under the faith. This is the way that I see the faith. I was like, to me, Islam is the most feminist religion because that's the way that I interpret it. And that is what I believe in. And you like, honestly, the so firstly, um, nothing happened for like one or two days, right? And then I hit the front pages of the papers (laughs) because all of a sudden, the, the other thing I should mention, Kim, is that I, up until this point, I had been like the model minority. I had been oh. given, you know, Young Australian of the Year for my state. I had gotten all sorts of awards and accolades because I had like, my memoir was about how I had succeeded in Australia, ultimately, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I was still young and fresh and mm-hmm. thought I was doing things the right way. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this model minority turns around and says she thinks that Islam is feminist, mm-hmm. so that she's proud of this, that she doesn't think that, you know, we need to change ourselves in order to live in a society. No, no, no. This was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I became, yeah, the the controversial. Yes. So let's let's unpack two things. Oh, I'm loving. I'm See, this is, okay, let me tell you why I'm loving this because every show is different. And so I'm loving that we can, you're, this whole show is about you telling your story, but we can pop in and out these, these lessons. So I'm loving all of this. So at this point, and I want to, I want to get to the end of this story, which will lead us to today. Um, (laughs) um, But I want to talk about, um, feminism and Muslims, because no one's ever mm-hmm. brought that up. I want to have mm-hmm. that perspective. Mm-hmm. But also, um, oh, shit, you just said something. Um, you said right before I stopped you. Um, oh, becoming the controversial. No, model minority myth. I want you to unpack that because there is so. OK, so I'm going to let you do and then we'll we'll. So um, Again, everybody, you know me. Fuck you. I'm going to do this the way I want to. Um, <laughs> we're going to take a pause from the story. We're going to get back to this yeah. beautiful story. But I want to unpack because I have issues. I seriously have issues with feminism the way it is mm-hmm. currently promoted, which is basically white feminism. And, and so I want to, because you just said something that I know people are going to have a problem with, that there is that um, the Muslim faith is feminist when everybody, when what we see is burqas and this and that, mm-hmm. and they can't drive and all that. So I want you to talk about that. And then I want to talk to you as someone who is, was a member of the Mito mm-hmm. minority myth, mm-hmm. what that, what, what that was like and what that really meant. So go yeah, ahead. So I think that a lot of Muslims do have a problem with the term feminism and it's not necessarily the most accurate one to use. I would say that Islam has a gender equality like baked into it. And that's why it's a faith that I subscribe to. And and it's actually like quite a lot of Muslim women will fight for gender equality through the lens of their faith. They will go back to, you know, they will go back to the to the book, to the Quran and say, our God gave us equal rights or our God gave us equitable rights. How can you take that away from us? How can you as men take that away from us? And so I think it's You know, there's lots of things that I can point to. I can point to the fact that, for example, Muslim women never take their husband's names because the idea of of marriage is not that you're your husband property, but that you are two people coming together. So I'm getting married 
soon and my partner and I have written a contract together and that contract is our relationship contract and that's what we signed. There are no vows. There are no till death do you part. There is you fulfill the rights and responsibilities of this contract and that's what marriage is. You know, um, we were, Muslim women were given the rights to own land like 1500 years ago. We, um, like there were all sorts of things that quite strangely, like that was the way that women earned wealth and kept wealth in their family because their money and their wealth didn't go to their partners. It went to them and they could choose how they spent it. And I think like, sadly, what we see at the moment in many Muslim majority countries is two things. One, it's the impact of the patriarchy, right? And the patriarchy exists everywhere and has, and exists, provides the same challenges for Muslim women that it does for women of every other faith or, or like people who, who don't have faith, but still exist in patriarchal societies. And I think it's really important for us to realize that patriarchy isn't something that like just stops um, because people are speaking a different language or following a different faith. Patriarchal societies are incredibly, um, I suppose, like, okay, the way to frame it is that um, Islam came to very patriarchal societies. And so when it was introduced, it really challenged those patriarchal um, values and rules in a really radical way at the time, right? The fact that, like, women, girls were at the time such of such little value that the if you had a baby girl, sometimes they would bury them alive. Like they were, and then all of a sudden we turned the, you turn around and say, no, these people can actually own their own land and they're not your property. It was incredibly radical. So like from the very beginning, there was a radical feminist or like women's equality um, spirit in the faith. Over time, that was eroded. And it was also eroded during colonization. So during colonization, what happened is colonizers came in and said, no, 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 the women can't be, as powerful. So we're actually going to take away these rights from these communities. And then once you lose the process of colonization is a process of loss. And once you lose your connection to what you had before, all of a sudden, when you've become independent, which wasn't that long ago, you don't actually go back to what you were like pre-colonization. You've got to do all that work again. So we're in this really tricky process, I think, like Muslim majority countries are in a really tricky process of not only trying to put their identities together, but trying to reclaim who they were before the colonizers came. And so it's complex and it's tragic and it's really sad. And let us not forget that women are always used as tools in the wars of men to achieve whatever aims that they, so like, for example, you know, the war in Afghanistan was often talked about as a war to like free women from the burqa. But no one ever asked if that was what the women wanted or if that was the way that the women wanted to, quote unquote, be freed. You know, there is never a conversation that centers Muslim women. And, I th- and this is, you know, a real challenge. And I actually contributed to an anthology called It's Not About the Burqa, 17 Muslim Women. We wrote essays. Um, and, and it's funny, my essay was called Life Was Easier Before I Was Woke, actually. And we'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, but. I think once you know it, you can't unsee it. You can't unknow it. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, a good friend of mine uh, is this lovely white guy who's gone on this um, journey of, of, of decolonizing. And he said to me the other day, he was like, racism really is everywhere, isn't it? And I was like, yes, you've, you've <laughs> Ooh, taken girl. the red pill. Now girl. you see it. 
He's like, I can't, I can't unsee it. I was like, yeah, welcome. Welcome, darling. Because once you know, once you know, you can't unknow. And, and you see it every fucking where. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that kind of, that's how I sort of engage with the women's um, equality or the, you know, the feminist conversation in Islam. And ultimately, what I also say to people is, look, the very core thing is you have to realize that what equality or freedom or liberation looks like for you is not what it looks like for everybody else. And that's what you need to understand. Oh, yeah. I had that pushback because people were like, well, this is just a U.S. issue. Oh, come on now. Exactly. Like cultures are different. They have different values. And what freedom and liberation looks like in their society may be different, but you have to accept that. You have to accept that and not think that they're so brainwashed that they don't even know what liberation looks like for them because that's what frustrates me. People say to me, no, you're just so brainwashed, you don't realize that the headscarf is oppressive. And I'm like, no, you're so brainwashed that you don't realize that there can be a different version of liberation because for me, this is my version of it. I'm not going to have an issue with yours, but do not impose yours on me. And ultimately, mm-hmm. that's what it comes mm-hmm. down to. It needs to come down to a plurality of liberations. Yes. And that, oh, Hey, God damn, this conversation. (laughs) A plurality of liberations. Lord have mercy. Never heard of that, but yes. Does it make sense? I definitely, because that is the issue with feminism. That is my Mm -hmm. issue with it. When you have white women coming into spaces and saying, oh, we can only deal with what we all have the same is gender, but gender is not my issue. Like gender it's not mm-hmm. your you being a Muslim is the biggest thing that you're going to be attacked for. Right. Me being a and then oh, you are black Muslim. So so it's right. like you I have more privilege than you. I realize I have more privilege than you. So because I'm just a black woman, you're a black Muslim mm-hmm. woman. So it is. So <laughs> I have to understand that your your um, I'm not even going to say desire your whatever it is the pluralist liberation to wear whatever the hell you want to wear. And as long as you can articulate to me, uh, well, you know what? Mm. I take that back because I don't need to understand for you, for me to come in solidarity with you. I don't need to understand that. And that's another problem. I don't need to, if I know that my actions or the people's actions around me have the potential to cause harm to somebody else, that Mm. should stop me Mm. in my tracks. So I don't need to know Mm. why Yasmin wants to wear her scarf. I just need to know that Yasmin is saying that this is what she wants and this will bring her freedom and this is her expression of freedom. And I can say, you know what, sister? I got you. I stand with you, right? And that's what respect is. That's what mutual respect is. Ultimately, that is about us saying, you know what? That is your choice. And I respect that choice. And, And ultimately, it is not a choice that impinges on my freedom. Now, all of if you're in a situation where you know, my choice is to do X, Y, Z, and that does yes. harm others. That's, that's a different, a different like, conversation. Because like you um, wearing the head, the headscarf and whatever, or, uh, I'm going to go with as far as the burqa. I am right. a naked baby. That does not work for me. I want to be nude on every beach I can. So <laughs> as long as I can do that and you can do you, yeah. I am happy. <laughs> that's fine. Right. And that's just, that's the society we want, right? Like, ultimately, that is the society we're trying to build. But, uh, 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 nope, nope, I'm going to stop you because that is not the society we want. Because if that's the society we want, that will be the society we're working for. What we want, what people in privilege want is to stay comfortable. Mm. They want just enough mm-hmm. wokeness 
so that they can, this is why I do not, no longer, will not ever again uh, promote or recommend white fragility. Really? Because, oh, it does, goes just far enough for woke folks to get a a vocabulary. Interesting. But not not far enough for them to do the work that makes Mm. them uncomfortable. When they and they, it does and that's not the most dangerous to, spot, right? Yes, because and this is why I'm going to talk about this. Mm. When uh, Robin D'Angelo talks about right fragility, she's talking about it in an academic sense. That does not, and this mm. is why mm. a PhD is different because it's a theory rather than a DBA, which I'm getting, which is about applied theory. And when you apply white fragility as an economic, ter- as a, excuse me, as an academic term, as a theory of a white whiteness theory. In the real world, it becomes a tool of oppression because what it becomes, mm. and not just oppression, it becomes a tool of harm because what what people in the in the wilds use it to do is excuse their shitty behavior. Their shitty behavior has a cause and effect, and so it only talks about the cause. It does not talk about the harm and toxicity mm. that comes from someone who is now fragile because now you're protecting yourself mm-hmm. and whiteness will do anything mm-hmm. to protect itself, which means including harming me. Yeah, sadly. And that's what's made it so, so like, that's how yes. it's lived for so long. Yes, exactly. It will do any, so, so now you're just making people aware mm-hmm. of their issue. Mm-hmm. And so now they're become, they're developing more strategic and effective strategies mm-hmm. for protecting mm-hmm. their white fragility, mm-hmm. not stepping outside of their white fragility. Yeah. And that, I think, that's where you need to push people to, right? But, oh, I, I, my thing is, I want to view as, first of all, I've I realized that whiteness can, can take a lot of discomfort. So I'm never, I'm no longer saying <laughs> I need them to be uncomfortable. I need them to be in pain. That's so I need interesting. You to yes. I need you to be in pain because this is how, if you want, if you want an equitable society, yeah. we're in pain every single day. And so, and so, unless, so this to me is, that's why I don't talk about equality. This is until you can have, and I'm not interested in your empathy, mm. your compassion mm. or anything. Mm. I need you to understand that nothing, nothing you've ever experienced equals mm. what we experience on an everyday in and out basis. Mm. The psychological harm that mm. we have to do, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on you because in this conversation, you're the most vulnerable. The fact that you have to be in a world where someone sees your hair scarf mm. and sees you as an enemy yeah. makes you a target. Yeah. And it's exhausting. And I'm I'm sure yeah. Oh my God, I'm I'm at a point right now where if I'm not, I'm no longer applying to conferences. If you want me to, I'm only going if I'm mm. an invited guest and you have to have mm. security measures in place for me to go. I'm no, I will not speak in a state in the U.S. that is mm. open carry, which means that you can, that you have the right to carry a weapon into any, nope, I'm not doing that because yeah. white fragility What's is dangerous? so, well, well, well but again, yeah. cause and effect. I say my job, is to mo- is to make mm. white people uncomfortable mm. so we can get through this. There could be someone, and because of white fragility, you know, you don't take you. All it does is explain why you react that way. It doesn't explain. It does not give you. Uh, it does mm. not give you pause. It does not mm. hold you accountable for anything. I'm on the stage. I say something to trigger your ass. You got a gun. I'm shot. Yeah. I'm not doing that. And that's the thing. White fragility does not hold you accountable for anything. It just says, 
what the thing is. Yeah. Yeah. It just names it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There is no step two to this. And it, and that causes us harm. Um, so, Oh, Lord, this has been great. So now let's talk about this. Um, yeah. This uh, <laughs> model minority. Yes. The model minority. Yeah. So I'll, for those who don't know, the, the concept of a model minority is essentially um, the, the construct where you as a minority or a person from a marginalized background feel like you must earn your place, earn your equality, right? And so you work really hard. You do, you perform, you outperform, you do it with a smile, you know, you never complain. You're really grateful. All these things make people in power to turn around and be like, look, here is someone that you should all be like. You should all be like this person. She does all the right things. He, she, they do mm-hmm. all the right things. They don't complain. They're grateful for being here. But we forget that the model minority is based on an assumption that we must earn our right mm-hmm. to be treated as human. And once we step out of that line, once we get comfortable with our place, and then we start to, again, speak our minds and speak what we think is true, speak out mm-hmm. truth. Your free, so, exercise your freedom of expression. Right, right, right. But that somehow challenges the and threatens the status quo, those in power. People like, and I'll give you an I'll give you an example of how it was mm-hmm. destroyed. So yes, this um, I had this uh, altercation with this uh, politician. It goes viral, and and like it gets bad. I'm you know uh, essentially I have. Um, I'm on the front page of the national papers for days and days and days. They start calling everyone I've ever worked with. They, they try to dig up dirt. They try to say that I'm like a Muslim activist that's, you know, associating with terrorists, whatever. But after about a month, it dies down. And then we have a day in Australia called Anzac Day, which is kind of like Remembrance Day. And on Anzac Day, I wake up and on my Facebook page, I post, lest we forget, and then in brackets, I post Manus, Nauru, Syria, Palestine, because I believe that there are other places that we shouldn't forget on a day of remembrance. And Manus and Nauru are these detention prison camps, essentially, where Australians hold people in indefinite detention for trying to get to the country. So if you're trying to get to Australia seeking asylum because you're being persecuted in your country of origin, you don't get to make it to Australia. You get put on a camp That's essentially, I think Amnesty has called it a man-made humanitarian crisis. I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently, this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm, and for prioritizing the most vulnerable, is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens 
with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1, Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. That's essentially, I think Amnesty has called it a man-made humanitarian crisis. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you right there. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Because this is why I love history, and this is why so many damn people are ignorant. Hmm, mm-hmm. Does that sound like something that we're doing at our South border in the mm-hmm. United States? And now yeah. all the woke white folks were like, people in cages, people in cages. This shit has been going on for centuries. For yeah. Yeah. This is this is this it's is not, not new. It's new to you because you're just yeah. particularly in the United States. 2016 was your great awakening mm-hmm. to what racism is and the horrors and atrocities the U.S. has 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 done to other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to, again, draw the parallels that it's not just the U.S. So Australia also and we're not even going to talk about what they did to their indigenous people that parallels exactly. what the U.S. has done to our indigenous people. But yeah. you're saying in 2020, this is going on. But whenever you wrote this, so it's there. There is no come on, people. I need you to I'm doing this so you can draw the parallels. This is yeah. a global issue. It definitely is. Internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness is a global issue. Let's also, like, I'm going to take a moment here. People don't realize that Australia had something called the white Australia policies until the mid-70s. You could not migrate to Australia unless you were a white European until the mid-70s. Like, it is a country based and steeped in whiteness. And then anyway, on top of that, you had, sorry, no, yeah. no, 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 because we want to make sure you also had, so you can only migrate if you're white, but you also had apartheid for the black people who were already mm-hmm. there. Exactly. Oh, no, that was so, South Africa. Sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. Well, no, South Africa modeled their policies on Australian policies. Uh, it's all connected. Yes. It's all connected. hundred percent. Well, also, fact, yeah. that was mm, an English colony. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, surprise. People forget, like, I now live in London, the heart of the empire. People forget that, like, Americans didn't invent slavery. Yes. It was actually the English who started the whole thing. And so, like, yes, you know, the, the American story um, is one that we pay quite a lot of attention to because of its tragedy, but it is a global phenomenon. It's like, thank you. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to correct you here um, in saying, um, I, I do not like when people say American because it that right there is privilege. Fair. There is a North, South, Central America. Fair. We are oh, the United oh. States. Yeah. Because when we say that, we right there is mm. showing our global ignorance and how we as the United States are the default. So anybody else, mm-hmm. which are mostly brown folks, are less than. So they the people coming from south of the border. Now, mind you, Mexico was part yeah. of the United States before... Um, so we make excuses and say not even excuses. Mm. We say that they're mm. less and they don't belong mm. here because they're not American. Yes, they are Americans. Yeah, no, definitely. I'll take that. And thank you. Um, so I post this, um, and a friend of mine about an hour later says to me, Hey, um, did you mean to be offensive? And I was like, no, absolutely not. I don't think there's anything offensive about what I said. I was just saying that there were other people that we should also not forget. And he was like, no, 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 I think people are going to take quite a lot of offense. I was like, are you offended? And he was like, yeah, kind of. And I was like, look, fine, I'll take it down. But like, 
you know. Oh, I love how he deflected. Yeah. I love how he deflected mm-hmm. other people yeah. until you asked yeah, the like, right question. You? Are you the one that's... Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I take the post down because, and then I say, I'm sorry for any offense cause because that was not my intention. Ah! I know, but wait for it. Like that, th- two things. One is like, I was not... That's your default. That is, that's again, your default. It's my default. Your default is to censor yourself and not only censor yourself, but to apologize. To for apologize. Yes. Right. Regardless, Kim. Yes, that's what we do. It was like I killed the Pope. Mm-hmm. The amount of vitriol that was directed mm-hmm. at me, not just on social media, not just on mainstream media, but by members of parliament. I was debated mm. in government for months. I was on the front page of every paper. The prime minister commented it. The immigration minister, when I lost my job on the broadcaster, he said, one down, many to go. People called Mm. me a bitch on television. They Mm. literally, when I wrote an article about the number of death threats I get, one of the the commentators on radio said, fair enough, I I would run her over if I saw her. (gasps) Like this happened, this went on for an entire year. I was, it was in 2017 in Australia. I was 25 when it kicked off. And the thing that blew me away was that all of those organizations that had supported me, that had given me awards, that had wanted to be associated with me when I was the model minority, where were they? Where were they? Yes. They mm-hmm. were nowhere to be seen. Woo, girl, you just, you just hit. Okay, so this is, as we, as this airs, I'm going to give you an illustration of what she's talking about. And I'm going to give you an illustration because what you're saying, are people going to say, oh, that's one off because that's just a nat- I mean, that's mm. a big story. That's, that's, mm. no, I'm going to give you a story of a re- um, uh, example of a uh, read on Twitter. There's a young lady who's at the airport and she was on the moving sidewalk at the airport. And a white dude, um, she's standing because the etiquette is if you're going to stand, stand to the right so people mm. can go left. This white dude has bags, and so she's standing there, not you know, just chilling. And she feels this knocking into the back of her leg, mm. and he's basically get the hell out of my way. She's like, "But I'm, you can go around." And so he literally is calling her a bitch and everything. He is, mind you, there are white people standing all around mm. her, looking in horror, mm. but not saying a damn word mm. to protect this woman. She thought her life was in danger because mm. he then takes off running. Mm. at the end so this is how it looks in everyday life every time you see something you white folks who want to be liberals and progressives keep your damn mouth closed and this is how you're complicit in our harm but yet you want to be individuals you want to light candles you want to do all this bullshit after the fact after the fact yeah i said to my mom i was like if i had been killed people would have turned up to my funeral in droves. Yes. But none of these people were there yes. when I was walking through the war zone on my own. Exactly. And this is why I don't trust anybody with white, black, I mean, yeah, but black women. Because when, if I would have known you during that time, mm. we would have, we would have been in solidarity. We would, yeah. I would have been contacting you constantly. How are you doing? That, and the people the, who did were black women. Exactly. You know? Because no one yeah. understands our struggle but us. Our intersectionality is the only thing. We have the race and we have the gender issue. Mm. And we understand. And I don't understand because I'm not on your platform. Your platform mm. is way bigger than mine. But I understand what it's like. Just like I told that story. Mm. Because... It happens to me. It doesn't happen often anymore because I'm calling mm. that shit out. Mm. But I'm going to tell you, even as loud and as bitchy as people think I am, I still have to make a calculated <laughs> yeah. effort in my head 
will speaking out to protect myself in this moment cause me further harm? And it's a real calculation. And I th- it's a real calculation. So sometimes I have to bite my yeah. fucking tongue and it makes me so damn angry. Yeah, I completely empathize because it's it is so much work. And I'm going to stop you right there. And she can use the word empathize because she's been in similar <laughs> situations, people. This is what empathy is. Yeah. You, I, you don't come to me as a white person talking about you empathize. There's no way in hell you could understand mm. have been in this situation. And mm. I'm, I'm, I'm stopping you there just because the lessons, because everybody in tech wants to talk about empathy and compassion right now mm-hmm. is bullshit. That stuff causes harm. Mm-hmm. All you can do is guess or try to imagine. No, 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 no. Yasmin understands what I'm saying. And although I have not been in her situation and God knows I haven't, because I tell you, I am not trying to be a martyr for this work, Mm. but I can definitely see myself being in that situation. That shit scares Mm. the hell out of me every single day. And it's, yeah. I mean, I ultimately, I left Australia because of it. I left Australia because I, because for me, I was like, you know what? There is no way for me to win this. And I'm not interested in being a master for this. Yes. And you know what the irony is? People, as soon as I left, people were like, we need your voice back. I was like, excuse me, excuse me. When my voice was there, right, you were happy for it to be drowned out yes. by the yes. cat calls of people who wanted yes. me dead. Yes. Right. And now you want me to come back? So what? I can, I, you can publicly execute me again? Yes. No. Yes. For me, yes. leaving was drawing my boundaries. For, for, for me, leaving was me saying, I am making a decision for myself and my yes. safety because yes. I need to protect myself at the end of the day. Girl, baby. I, and this is why I say you have to be, you have a strategy doing this work. You cannot just be out here willy-nilly because that's how we get harmed. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I, it's, and because the, it's never about if the harm will come. It's only about yeah. when the harm, the yeah. harm will come. And so this is why the year when I first saw this path that I was going down, people in the security part of the community, hashtag causing community, made sure I had um, delete me so all my shit can come off the internet. Mm. They made sure I was doing two-step authentication. One of the members in the community actually gave me a laptop that has all these security features on oh, it that he great. added to. Yeah, that he added to the, um, mm. to the um, and he's just a white dude. He's a white yeah. dude. Trying, he fucks up all the time. But you know what? What he does when he he's like, I, I'm learning. But yeah. he's taking action. He's not sitting back like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. do, do. Yeah. Um, and so when it, I had it on a small scale when I was getting um, emails on my website that I had to take mm. my contact form down. I had people DMing me, so I had to shut my DMs down. So if you're not following me, you cannot send me DMs. But I also make sure that every time I get a follower, I look at my followers. Mm. I, I vet my followers. Mm. I have to, I'm an educator. So I thought, hey, you know, I need to be open to everybody. That caused me harm. Yeah. I am in a bubble and I'm loving my bubble. I say, yes. I say this to people all the time. I'm like, I have carefully designed my echo chamber. Thank you very much. Because I know that it's bad yes. out there. Yes. I love my echo chambers. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Like beyond the wall yes. is danger. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. I do not yes. want to go out beyond the wall. <laughs> And if it ain't a whole bunch of white folks protecting me right, right. on my left, my right, mm-hmm. my front, my back, I'm not going out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that's why that's why I have, the, like I said, the rule of when you and it's not just for me. I'm in a particular situation where 
I can have conversations with conference organizers and say, if you want me at your um, event, have you thought about my, because you might have your code of conduct and you might have your Mm. little thing, but have you thought about my physical safety? And it's not just for me. It is for those people who are most more vulnerable than me, who you want to now, because it's cool to bring in trans and non-binary people. There are people in your audience who, who do not think they exist. So have you thought about their physical safety? So I'm forcing these conversations so that people can start thinking about this shit. When you bring these people in and bring these into these very, we need these voices. But again, we don't need to be martyrs for this shit. Just so whiteness can learn. Come on now. Exactly. You can't hire like, (laughs) you can't hire me, a black Muslim woman without getting black Muslim women problems. Like you need to be able to handle that. Yes. Yes. And this is so funny. So every time, so I I can say when I was, when I'm speaking, it often times I am. It doesn't happen as much now because I don't mm. speak as much. I'm very selective now. But, 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 but oh, at 2018, uh, every <laughs> it, it, you would get conference organizers who are getting um, co- people reporting me for code of conduct violations, and they were like, uh, "What? Mm. What? What's the problem? She made me uncomfortable. This was inappropriate." Brother. My sec, my third slide is always my <laughs> content warning. My job is to make white people uncomfortable. So these are the things that mm. this is no different from you being at your work. Okay. Again, people I want to draw it back to you when, when we're, black women are at their jobs, doing their jobs. And we, we say something, we could be a manager. How long it takes us to write an email. You get your feelings hurt. You report yeah. us to HR. And then that impacts yeah. my money because I can't get a promotion. I can't get a raise because you can't handle again. Your wife agility mm-hmm. has consequences that you're not dealing with, but mm-hmm. I have to deal with. And so um, the conference organizers are like, no, that's not a violation. I, it is it be it is beyond <laughs> me that you get you get to report or criticize or just sit, just the level of I don't mm-hmm. like this, so I'm going to mm-hmm. report this. This I, there's a lot of shit in my life that I don't like, and I don't. But it, and and again, I'm going to draw those lines. I don't like this, so I'm going to call mm-hmm. the police on you. Yeah. What? What I'm doing, I'm just being yeah. my black self. Yeah, but that is a, that's a threat, right? To them. Yes, because you escalated yeah. something that mm-hmm. has nothing even to do with you and, then, and, then, and brought in a, an, an entity, mm-hmm. a system that's a history of killing and abusing us because you were uncomfortable because you couldn't mind your own damn mm-hmm. business. And I think that, that constant threat that, you know, black people and people that live at, at the margins and in the intersections, the, the constant threat that we, that our very existence is seen as to others. And the, as you say, the psychological toll that takes on us as individuals and us as communities, every single, every single day we wake up and we have to make calculations about how we're going to turn up yes. for our own safety. Yes. yes. That, yes. I think, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily live and see a world where that doesn't exist, but I definitely am creating those spaces where mm-hmm. I can just relax and I can be my, my full yes. whole self. Yes. And, and then people get pissed when we do all black this and we do all women that or black women. We, I, I can't have my, so um, the BIPOC space at last year's, um, 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 JS cough was constantly about um, us defending the space for us, for people of color just to be in it and white people are like, why can't I go in? Every damn part of this fucking um, 
we were in a fucking hangar. Well, well, we're no, world, just in yeah. this, it was a fucking um, what is factory? Uh, nah, uh, warehouse setting. The whole damn thing is yours. We yeah. have this little bitty space, and you just have to you demand to be pushed in. We were so comfortable. It was w- the one space in that whole thing where there were first of all. Anytime you we having a conversation, there is one of us and 20 of y'all. This is the one place we could go and relax mm-hmm. and just chill. And you want you're offended and want to invade. That's the word. It was an invade. You were trying to force an invasion mm-hmm. on us. Mm-hmm. That takes a toll. Yeah. That you know, that invasion is part of their culture. Like white yes. people have categorically gone and, and created empires like that. Yes. So exactly. exactly. Know, that's that's how they see the world. Um, and then that takes us all back to the freedom of expression. Who actually has freedom of expression? Right. And when people talk to me about freedom of speech, I have to remind them that not everybody has that freedom. And actually, sometimes what I think the reason that white people fight for freedom of speech more than anything else is because it's the only freedom that they don't have. Whereas the rest of us, we have to fight for the freedom to exist, you know? Mm-hmm. At the very mm-hmm. basic level. Well, and also we're 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 because as the more we talk, it 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 challenges the narrative that they've been able to to to, to um to propagate around the world forever. Mm-hmm. Um, they we're no longer they're no longer the experts of our experience. They never were, mm-hmm. but they were the only ones that had mm-hmm. the mic and the power and the pr- mm-hmm. to to um cast themselves. I say this all the time. Whiteness is always cast as hero or vil- a victim. It's never the villain. And so now we're telling stories of white villains and they are pissed. Don't like it. They cannot yeah. shut us down. And so they, the only video I ever had taken down from Periscope was the title that white men in tech ain't shit. <laughs> and I'm going to, and I'm going to tell you who actively took it down. The model minority, South Asian men, South um, Indian men, were the ones who were the most vitriol, the ones, those are the, that was when, that's why I want you to talk about, um, that's why I really want you to talk about um, the model minority because in tech, South Asian men, um, Indian men are not a minority, mm. um, not in tech. And they are the ones who I get the most attack from mm. as they protect their proximity to whiteness yeah. and their privilege. Um, and they're more because um, and they are the biggest challengers. And that's what, that's another thing about the model minority. It it is it's the same thing as colorism. It um, it is a strategy that's distance whiteness from blackness um, and puts in between a group of people who are giving just enough privilege so that they're willing to fight for it on behalf of white supremacy. So yeah. white supremacy doesn't have to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the sidekick, right? Yeah. So how would you like, what are the last things you'd like to say um, to leave the audience with? Firstly, I would like to say that this journey that all of us are on, right, is one that you never stop learning. So when we, we talked earlier about, you know, folks who like stress out that they're not doing the right things and so they just stay silent or they don't know if they're going to say the right thing so they just stay silent or whatever. Like your silence is your complicity. We need you to keep learning. We need you to keep making mistakes. That's fine. Apologize, move on, build your resilience when it comes to this work because all of us need to be part of this work, right? And also for those who are at the intersections and the margins doing this work, you do not have to be a master. That is not what we're asking you to do. You need to protect yourself first. Put your oxygen mask on first. I had to, I, I continue to do that because I am not interested in dying for this cause. Yes. And 
also, you know, find find your echo chamber. If your echo chamber, if your bubble keeps you safe, then that is totally okay because the world is hostile. You know, the world is not a kind, compassionate place to those who are not in positions of structural power. So find where you are safe and make the absolute most of that and turn up for each other because solidarity is the only way that we're going to win. We get there together or not at all. Exactly. Thank you so much. This has been Thank a wonderful you. conversation. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.